Well, good morning and welcome to our first step into 2 Thessalonians as we continue right off the, the coattails of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, this church in Thessalonica was planted by the Apostle Paul and his two missionary companions, the first one being Silas or Silvanus, depending on if you go with his Jewish or Roman name, respectively, uh, and then Timothy. Silas is an older Jew. Uh, he's, uh, we see that in Acts chapter 16. Uh, he's also a church leader and a prophet. We see that in chapter 15. And then Timothy is Paul's young protege, which you kind of find out in all throughout 1 Timothy, especially chapter 4. Uh, these two guys helped the Apostle Paul to establish this church in the city of Thessalonica. It was not a small city. It had a population of around 250,000. It was called the Mother of Macedonia, or the, uh, the Northern Metropolis. It was founded by Alexander the Great, and it's still an important trade city in the Aegean uh, uh, Sea. It, it uh, exists today. Uh, it's, it goes by the name Thessaloniki in, Gre in Greece, um, and that's where Paul planted, uh, planted his church. At that time... Crime was rampant, prostitution was rampant, uh, babies were frequently abandoned. Uh, there was a lot of work to do in order to transform and regenerate the lives of people that had converted to the faith in the gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul had three Saturdays where he evangelized the Jews in the synagogues, and then he had a few weeks maybe to evangelize the Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. Many came to faith in Jesus and the church was born, and, there, uh, and as that happened, some angry Jews in, in Thessalonica decided to bring persecution. They uh, formed a mob and they, they started to, uh, to harass the, the Christians. In order to protect Paul and Silas and Timothy, the church sent them away because they feared that the angry mobs uh, would, would harm them. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Berea. They planted a church there, and then they went to Athens, and then they went to Corinth, so they traveled for a while. Paul stayed in Corinth for months, worrying about many things, but certainly worrying about this young church that he had to leave behind. He was only there for a few weeks to teach them. And so at a certain point, he sends Timothy to go check on them, and then Timothy returns with this fantastic report about their growth in faith and love and hope. And so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in response to that very positive report, and he cleared up some questions about, uh, about the return of Jesus and, and rapture and all that kind of stuff. And now, a few months later, after he wrote the first letter, he hears that the Thessalonians are still growing, but they're still confused about some of the eschatology, some of the theology of the end times. So uh, someone has gone in there, apparently, and taught them wrongly about the return of Jesus, about the day of the Lord, uh, and they're still being persecuted by angry Jews that are out there. So that brings us to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. We call it Second Thessalonians, and we're going to go one chapter a week through this three-chapter book. Today, then, is chapter one, which will be the letter's opening words, and then immediately a remark about the future and about how God plans to wrap up uh, the history of mankind. This is a word of comfort to the persecuted church, and as always, Paul's truth about the future is communicated in order to result in faithfulness today. So if you're taking notes, we're going to go in four movements. We're going to go like this. The first is present faithfulness. That's verses 1 through 4. And then the second is future hope, which is verses 5 through 12. And then the, the remaining two points... Will be, uh, will be embellishments on the ideas, first of the vengeance on God's enemies, vengeance on God's enemies, and then finally, relief for God's people. Relief for God's people. 
All right, let's start with present faithfulness in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very standard greeting, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, let's stop there. This isn't nearly as grand of an opening as 1 Thessalonians had. That went for three chapters on how much Paul loves this church. It's a brief opening. It's a brief affirmation, probably because it comes so soon after the first letter was already received. And while he doesn't say anything particularly new about this church, he does restate two things that he mentioned in the previous letter. First, he talks about the Thessalonians' love for one another uh, and how they've been growing in that, how they've been doing it well, and how they keep increasing in it. Uh, he commended this for, uh, to the Thessalonian church before. If you remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia and in Achaia. Um, when, you, uh, when, when you look at that love that they have for one another, um, it's not just camaraderie. It's not just that they hang out and have a good time. Paul would not have just settled for having fun together. That's not what he means when he talks about love. Uh, he's the guy that says love is patient, love is kind, you know, it keeps no record of wrongs, etc. He's the guy that says stuff like that. Love entails uh, affection, service, reconciliation, correction, affirmation, instruction, patience, forbearance, etc., and he doesn't need to get the Thessalonians to, uh, to figure this all out. They seem to be doing it well and increasing in this. And what's, what he loves about them is that they didn't feel like, oh, we've got this covered and they checked it off a list, but it seems like they're always working to increase in it more and more. Unlike the church in Corinth or the church in Philippi, he doesn't need to settle disputes or get them to, to, uh, to resolve conflicts. He just says, you guys are already so good at this, and you keep getting better and better. So that's the first thing that he restates from something he mentioned in the first letter. The second thing that he restates, though, is also from the first letter. He says that he boasts about this church to other churches. He brags about them. He tells other churches how great the church in Thessalonica is. They were a model congregation for others to learn from, despite how young the congregation was. Now, when people boast about churches, what is it that they are talking about? What features do they bring up when they boast about church? I think today, when people talk about their churches, they might mention things like the building, whether or not they have a, a gymnasium or basketball court or something like that. They might mention the architecture because it's so beautiful, stained glass windows or works of art. The programs that they have, maybe they have a really great rehab program, or maybe they have really good counseling programs, things like that. The music, um, maybe they have famous members. They go, I, I go to this church and, and this, uh, this celebrity also goes there. Or they talk about the church's wealth, or the size of the church, or the, the, the numbers in the, in, the, in the youth group, or uh, whether or not they have a, a famous leader or pastor. 
uh, distinct theology. Maybe they're the only church that teaches a certain thing or a certain way. Maybe their liturgy is, is uh, unique. Uh, maybe they have a swimming pool or they have good child care. Or they have so many published materials. There are lots of things that people can name in order to boast about their churches. And uh, we think that these are what makes a church worth being at. We might use that to say, you should come to my church because we have, and then you name any one of those things. But what does Paul boast about? When the Apostle Paul talks about this church inspired by the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit tell him to boast about? What does he tell other churches about? The Apostle Paul boasts that the Thessalonians are faithful, and it's the kind of faithfulness that's proven during persecution and affliction. It's faithful during suffering, during pain, during offense, injustice, inconvenience. It's faithfulness when everything emotionally does not want to be faithful. He mentioned this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, you can't fake that. Persecution destroys false faith. There's a, there's a weird thing. We think that if persecution comes, the church is doomed. We, we oftentimes think that. We think that if the United States passes some kind of law to, out, to, uh, to make it illegal to teach the Bible or something, we somehow think that the gospel will be defeated. But that's not the case. Persecution has always strengthened faith, and it has always burned out the chaff, the false faith. Persecution and difficulty and suffering reveal the nature of your faith. If you remember, uh, Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 13 about, uh, about four soils. And, uh, and in, the, in the four soils, uh, when he talks in Matthew, he talks about these four soils, and each of the four soils seems like they, they're going to sprout or something. They all kind of look the same, but over time, either birds snatch the seeds out, or, uh, or the sun dries one out, or weeds choke another one out, and only one bears fruit. And his point on that in the whole parable is to say, a lot of people look like they're faithful. They all go to church, they hear the message and stuff, and then when things get difficult, when life hits them hard, or when you distract them with other things of the world, you see the faith fizzle out. And only the ones that bear fruit have true saving faith. All those other ones that started off and looked like they were interested and got real into it and then eventually faded out were not fruitful and were not part of the, the salvation plan. Persecution and difficulty and suffering reveal the nature of your faith. A believer's trust in Jesus grows during persecution. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you, uh, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that gives you a, a very good indicator about faith. When, when faith is genuine, Genuine faith is tested by various trials, and at the end of it, it results in glory to Jesus. 
James chapter one kind of says that too. I don't have the, the verse up for you, but James chapter one verses two through four says that when your uh, when your faith is tested, if it's genuine, it amounts to perseverance or steadfastness, and that steadfastness amounts to maturity, perfection. It perfects you. So when you want to see the quality of someone's faith, you watch how someone suffers, you watch how they're afflicted, you watch when they're offended, you watch when they're persecuted, you watch when they're upset. You watch when they're sad. You watch when they're triggered. You watch when they're panicked. You watch in all those moments where emotionally they don't want to be faithful, and you watch to see whether or not there is an enduring faithfulness that bears fruit. Does this person endure and pray and obey, or does this person rage, give up, despair, get bitter? To whom do they seek refuge? Do they go to vengeance, justice, alcohol, entertainment, rage or despair, any kind of emotional disposition that just lets them stew? Or are they steadfast? Do they confront? Do they rebuke? Do they, do they make themselves known? Do they, do they confess their sins? Do they reconcile with others? Only genuine faith actually bears fruit when life is painful, when life is difficult or unfair, inconvenient, tragic. Genuine faith bears fruit. Anything else is counterfeit. The Thessalonians were persecuted and afflicted, and yet they kept loving each other, and they remained steadfast in their faith. That's the church to whom Paul writes. And so, to such a commendable church that's being persecuted and afflicted, he, he writes a message of, uh, of comfort. And he says, I know you're going through persecution. I know you're going through affliction. And so let me comfort you, not by saying, oh, everything's fine. And not by pretending that the problem isn't a problem, but by pointing you to a future hope. And so we get to verses five through 12 on the future hope. Let me read uh, verses five through 10 first. This is what it says, verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now I'm stopping there and I'll read verses 11 and 12 at the very, very end. But uh, let's talk about this future hope. It's a big paragraph, and it sounds like there's a lot of theological terms thrown in there, and, and if you don't stop and think about it, you might miss some of the richness of what God is trying to tell us. The Thessalonians were enduring persecution for their faith, and it was becoming more and more severe as time went on. The government was ramping up in their hostility against Christians. Now, what does Paul say to them to comfort them in the midst of the oppression and the injustices that they're suffering? He says, Jesus is coming back. He says, Jesus Christ will return. That's where the solution is. The solution isn't if you had a little bit more money or if you just weren't sick anymore. 
if only you changed jobs and had a different employer. He doesn't say that. He says that the solution is in the return of Jesus Christ. God will have his vengeance upon the earth for what, uh, for what the earth does, what the world does to his people. That's the climax of the story of mankind. That is the moment we are all waiting for. That's the great hope. And it is sure. It's not a hope of wishful thinking. It's a hope of eager waiting. We wait with certainty. The return of Jesus Christ is the theme here. It's phrased in verse 7 as the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Whenever a Christian reads scripture, it points to the coming certainty in the future of the world that Jesus will return to the earth. Right now, he's unseen. He's in heaven. And the world doesn't believe he exists or doesn't believe uh, he is who he says he is. That's where the world is at right now. But he shall be revealed. And we who presently love him, though we haven't seen him, we will see him and then we'll love him perfectly. If you get technical here, it says, um, you know, Jesus uh, will be revealed. Apocalypsis is, is, is really the, the root. Um, meaning unveiled. Revealed. He'll be unveiled. As in, he'll be seen without obscurement. When you take a veil off of something, it's no longer obscured. You can see it clearly, the fullness of it. So he'll be seen fully. Now, what the world will see when Jesus is unveiled is the real Jesus. It's the Jesus that has not been seen before. Now, you know Jesus has come to the earth 2,000 years ago, and we saw Jesus, but that was still veiled. 2,000 years ago, if you were to visit baby Jesus in Jerusalem, you wouldn't be able to visually see that he was the promised Savior. There would be no indicator. He didn't have some kind of a mark on him or a tattoo or some kind of a strange glow. He didn't levitate over his crib. He, didn't, uh, ha he wasn't surrounded constantly by a, a sound of choir. There was nothing that gave away the fact that he was divine. If you walked around with him during his ministry with the 12 apostles, his physical appearance wouldn't give away his divinity. He was actually unremarkable in his appearance. Even if you stood at the cross watching him bleed, you couldn't point to anything in his appearance that showed and proved that he was God in flesh. But when Jesus is revealed at his return, he will be unveiled. We will see him fully there will be no question as to where he has come from or who he is or what he is. He'll be revealed in flaming fire, which is God's signature sign of a divine glory. That's how God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus 3. That's how God came down on Mount Sinai to write the law in Deuteronomy 5. That's how God ordained the disciples at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's how God sends out his ministering angels in Psalm 104. That's how Jesus revealed himself at his second coming to demonstrate that he is God. He comes in the flaming fire, the divine presence. He'll be unveiled and he'll be revealed with his, his mighty angels inflicting God's vengeance on the unbelievers of the world. Now, let's correct this a little bit. It says that God will be revealed, uh, sorry, Jesus will be revealed with his mighty angels, his mighty angels. And it sounds like he's just surrounded by very mighty angels. He's very lucky to have this entourage. I, uh, I don't like the way that that's translated. Uh, I think the, the translation ought to stand with the, the proper use of the genitive. It's the angels of his power. Not his powerful angels, but the angels of his power. That's what makes angels mighty. 
Angels are vessels, they're messengers, and they carry with them the power of Jesus, the power of God. It is not that Jesus is protected by these mighty angels. It is not that. It is that the angels are granted the power of Jesus, and they come with him to carry out his will. He is not protected by them. They are protected and empowered by him. Now, when I think of the, the way that Jesus is revealed, you know, in flaming fire, he's, he's coming on the clouds and uh, his, his angels will be with him, the angels of his power. It's crazy how many false religious leaders throughout history claim to be Jesus or claim to be someone greater than Jesus, and yet they never come close to anything that describes that power or that fury or that majesty or that glory that Jesus is always described with at his return. There is a terror that comes with Jesus' return. Every unbeliever will, will be shaken down to his or her core. But Jesus returns, and when he returns, he comes with two purposes. Those two purposes are, are stated in verse 6 and 7. I'll, I'll put it up, verse 6 and 7. God considers it just to, first, repay with affliction those who afflict you, and then second, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is unveiled or revealed from heaven with the angels of his power. Now, so Jesus comes to repay evil and to give relief to his people. Those are the two purposes of the return of Jesus. They get restated in verses 8 and 10. If you, if you look at it, it says, uh, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God uh, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then verse 10 says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Right? He inflicts vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. That's what he does. And then he brings relief to his people and they marvel at him. They stand in wonder and they say, this is the one that we've been waiting for. Now, let me give you a side note here, right? The, uh, the gospel is not just something to agree with mentally. If you notice, uh, back in verse 8, it said that uh, he's inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is not just a story that you go, yeah, I think that's true. The gospel is a call to, to a life of godliness, a, a repentance from, faith, from sin, excuse me, a repentance from sin, and faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a transformation. It's a surrender of saying, I change course. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will have vengeance poured out on them. That's a scary thing because there are a lot of people who go to church they think that they're Christian, and then they kind of end up doing something else. You know, after they go to college or after they get a job or something like that, they kind of end up doing something else. And they go like, I, I did the thing, and I guess I'm a Christian. I just, I don't really feel like going to church and stuff. And they don't obey the gospel, which includes going to church. It includes just being part of the body, building the body up, and then advancing on the mission and bringing the kingdom uh, more people. But instead, they just live like, like the rest of the world. And that's scary. That's a, that means that the vengeance of God will be poured out on them. Let me show you Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 26. This is written to Jews who knew about the Messiah. They heard the gospel, and yet they refused to repent and obey. And that's very much like people who went to church, heard all the sermons, and then refused to repent and obey. 
Hebrews 10, verse 26, it says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Anyone who claims to be a Christian, anyone who claims to be a part of the people of God, there will be an examination. Until they repent and believe, until they trust and obey the Lord Jesus, uh, nominal Christians or people who claim the name of Christ and yet do not obey him will be his enemies and will be treated as such. For those who obey the gospel, his second coming will be a relief. For those that do not, his second coming will be vengeance upon them. Let's talk about vengeance then. Our third point, vengeance on God's enemies. God's vengeance isn't like human vengeance. Human vengeance is motivated by personal reasons, personal passions, personal offense. Because someone did this to me or did this to someone that that I care about, I want to, and then you inflict harm. God perfectly knows people's motives. God perfectly weighs right and wrong. God perfectly defines justice and fairness. God perfectly measures what each person deserves. People cannot do any of those. But God can and God does. We get different instructions when it comes to vengeance. Because as much as Christians are told to be like Christ and told to be like God, one thing that we are told not to do is to act as judge. If anything, we're to rely on God's judgment and what we know God would judge as right and wrong, then we go and we, we carry that out. And, we, and we, we form our opinions in submission to him. But never to form for ourselves and judge for ourselves right and wrong, good and evil. Matthew 5, verse 39, when talking about vengeance, Tells, uh, tells God's people, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And so what God is saying is, uh, when an enemy offends you, love him. Respond with love. Don't take vengeance. That's not our job. That's God's job. God is the God of vengeance. So we're not supposed to take vengeance. We're supposed to leave that to the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, talking about God calling him the rock. The rock, his perfect, uh, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Verse 39, God says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. In verse 41, it says, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Verse 43 says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So there's this idea that God is the avenger. God is the God of vengeance. We are not vessels of his vengeance. We go and when, when someone offends us, then we love them in return. And we, we wait for the day that God will take vengeance. That day happens when Jesus returns. 
The Apostle Paul, who wrote 2 Thessalonians, also wrote the book of Romans. He too understands that God is a God of vengeance. He says in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Even uh, at, the, at the end times, during the tribulation, the seven-year period of God's wrath being poured out on the earth, the souls of martyrs in heaven will cry out to God for his vengeance. They won't cry out to you. They won't cry out to people that they love. They won't cry out uh, for, for one of their family members to avenge them. They'll cry out to God. Revelation ver- uh, chapter 6, verse 10. The, the martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, these are their souls in heaven crying out to him, recognizing that he is the avenger. And it's weird because we think of God as vengeful, but then when we think of Jesus, we think he's meek and mild. Right? You think God, Old Testament, there's violence and vengeance and justice. But when we get to New Testament, oh, he lightened up and now he's good. He was mean back then, but now he's nice. And we think Jesus is meek and mild and merciful and gracious and gentle and loving you know, let the little children come and he, in paintings of him holding a lamb or like standing behind someone, you know, steering a, a boat and he's like pointing and like, that's our, our impression of him. And he is all those things, but he is God. And he has extended his grace and mercy and love to those who repent and believe. Yes, true. And he's coming back to judge and destroy and eternally punish those who do not repent and believe. Jesus is the God of vengeance. He is. You know who who knew about this, this, knew this about Jesus? Long before Jesus even started his ministry, there was this guy named John the Baptist, right? He was preaching that the Messiah was was, going to come soon. and, uh, And what did he say about him? Did he say, the Messiah is coming, Christ is coming, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that what he said? No. Did he say, Christ is coming, and he is going to fix your marriage? No. Did he say, uh, Jesus is coming, you know, he's, he's going to make you happy, he's going to make you rich? He didn't say any of that stuff. This, this is what he said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is the God of vengeance. That's the Messiah. He will gather those who repent and believe into his barn. He'll, He'll gather them up, but the rest he'll burn forever. If you're an unbeliever, Jesus is coming, and he has a terrifying plan for your life, for your eternity. That's the plain truth that the Bible gives you. John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Verse 27, and he, God the Father, has given him, Jesus, 
authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says of his judgment in verse 30, my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's a clear call that he makes to repent and believe. He says, there's a time coming where I will come in vengeance. And so the time to repent and believe is now. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, judgment isn't just a possibility. It's an absolute certainty. There's a fixed day in which it's coming. It's set. It is not changing. Jesus will come to judge the world, bring vengeance in flaming fire with angels of his power against all who don't obey the gospel. The vengeance of God doesn't just mean terror and pain and death in this earthly life and then they they die and, and that's kind of it. It's not that. It means eternal hell. 2 Thessalonians, uh, if you remember in verse 9, it said, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That verse right there gives maybe the best essential definition of hell in a single sentence. Eternal destruction away from the presence of God and his glory. Eternal destruction, meaning perpetually being destroyed. It doesn't mean you're destroyed and then you never come back. It is, not, it is not a completed action. It is, you're always being destroyed. It is a conscious, eternal state of destruction. And you're away from the presence of God and of his glory. What happens when, when you're away from, from God? What happens when God is absent? What happens when you, uh, when you take away God and everything about God's glory? Well, James chapter 1 tells us about God. Uh, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. So everything good comes from God. That's what it says. So when you take God away and take his glory away, you take away everything good. Let's just start with that. You take away all the good things. Let's remove uh, all the stuff that you like about creation, about happiness, about light, about beauty, about friendship and relationships, intimacy, all of that. Let's, let's remove all of that. Now, what happens? The most common description of being away from God and and being in hell, the most common description of hell that the Bible uses is that it's a place of fire because fire is an agent of destruction in our world. And so that's the most vivid imagery that that the Bible gives us. It's used over 20 times. I'll show you Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. It says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man, that's Jesus, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's conscious, perpetual destruction. Now, I don't think that fire necessarily has to mean literal fire. I think that that imagery is vivid for, uh, to communicate to us destruction. But it doesn't, I don't know if it has to be actual fire because the other des- uh, description of hell is outer darkness 
A place of darkness. Now, when you have fire, that gives light. But when you have darkness, you just have darkness. So I think there's destruction, and then there's darkness. And if you notice in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, he mentions this. He says, unbelievers will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, uh, that's a, a state of, of grief and pain. It's destruction. There's perpetual decay that goes on. Isaiah 66, verse 24. It says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. He's speaking of what happens to his enemies, and their worm shall not die, meaning they're, they're decaying and they're being eaten up and stuff, but it never ends. It keeps going forever and ever. It is banishment from God's presence. It's exclusion from God's glory. It's, uh, it's, it's being removed from his goodness. It's being thrown away, worthless, forever. It's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's pain, it's torment, it's darkness, and it is forever. It is forever. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice that both the punishment and the life are eternal. No matter who you are, you will exist eternally. You were made in God's image. God is, is eternal. So you too, though you have a finite starting point, you go on. You are everlasting. And so you will either eternally be in life with him or you will eternally be in punishment away from him. Revelation 14, verse 11, it's uh, speaking of the enemies of God. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That's torment and no rest, never being able to stop to have a moment of relief. Revelation 20, verse 10 says the devil who had deceived everyone was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The lake of fire is the fiery furnace, so that's the, that's the upgraded version. That's new hell. As much as God makes new heaven and new earth, there's kind of a new hell in a sense. That's the lake of fire. And it's forever and ever, conscious punishment. Something to think about is that people in hell will be able to see people in heaven in some way. It's either going to happen right before they're thrown into the lake of fire, or it might happen for all eternity. It's, it's kind of unclear, but Luke chapter 13, verse 27, Jesus says of, of those who are going to hell, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. There is a sense where they will see the people of God. And they'll know that they can't be part of that. Will you have company if you end up in hell? Will, will people have company in hell? Well, kind of. You'll have the devil and you'll have all the demons and then all, all the unbelievers. But it doesn't seem like they'll be interacting with each other because when you're in a lake of fire, constantly drowning and burning, it doesn't seem like you have a whole lot of conversation. There's no, no light. There's no creation there. There's no footing. 
There's no air to breathe. There's nothing. There's no, nothing to see, nothing to, nothing to do. It's just punishment. Eternal loneliness coupled with severe burning, perpetual suffocation, decay, irreversible regret, and no way out. And it's weird because people in hell don't all get equal punishment, actually. Each person gets exactly what he or she deserves according to their deeds. There, there are people with greater condemnation. There are people with less great condemnation. If you go to our Revelation series, it's a sermon on hell, and that it just goes more in depth on all of that stuff. But I think you get the idea of God's vengeance. I, we, we have this notion of hell, and hell has kind of become a, a, a word that we use so easily in our language, in our society. How, you know, we just, we think that hell, like, oh, I, I went to, uh, you know, to um, train for football for school. It was hell week. And we just think that, oh, it's just working out really hard. It's just a little bit of discomfort. And it's far too mild of an understanding The notion of hell is terrifying. And to know that Jesus is returning to the world to bring that says something about his awesome power and his holy fury. Jesus is the God of vengeance. And he brings that to anyone who does not obey the gospel. Is there anything we should be afraid of? Absolutely not because he also brings relief for his people. And that's kind of our, our, our last point, right? The return of Jesus is vengeance on God's enemies, but you are not God's enemy if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. Then you're part of God's people. You are a child of God. That means for you, there's relief. He brings relief. The word relief means comfort, or actually it means rest. It's, it's, you know, it's related to the word rest. There, uh, he brings rest to his people. Now, just so you know, the Bible talks about three kinds of rest for believers, right? The first is just salvation rest, immediate rest from, you know, the minute you come to understand the gospel and, and you come to salvation, you, you realize you don't have to try to earn God's favor, you don't have to do a whole bunch of good works to try to win enough points to make it into heaven. You don't try to qualify for salvation. All of that's gone if you understand the grace of Jesus Christ, that we're saved by grace, not by works. When you realize that Jesus came to live and to die and to live again for you, and he did that freely, and if you just repent and trust in him, and if you, if you give your life to him, then it's free for you no matter how bad you've been. If you know that, then you're, you're immediately relieved of trying to earn your place with God. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says that. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's a salvation rest. That's, that comes from understanding God's grace, that he, he saves you. You don't save yourself. He saves you. He does all the work. You don't earn it. You just have to receive it. 
You lay down the life that you were trying to do for yourself and you receive the life that he's offering you. You repent of your sinful ways and you receive his righteousness and you live by it. I don't have the verse for you, but Hebrews 4.9 calls that Sabbath rest. We enter into a Sabbath rest. That's the real rest and relief of trying to earn our way to God. We rest from our labors and our works. The second kind of rest that you get, though, is a kingdom rest or a millennial rest. Uh, the, the kingdom is the millennial kingdom, thousand-year kingdom, right? That, that, that's future. Hasn't happened yet. It'll happen when Jesus returns uh, at the end of tribulation. He'll return, and uh, he'll establish a 1,000-year kingdom, a millennial kingdom. And the way that, uh, that is talked about in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So what that's saying is that thousand-year kingdom, that millennial kingdom, will be rest because creation at that time gets transformed to be like it was before sin, before the curse, before Genesis 3, right? There was the Garden of Eden, and there was the, there was the world, and everything was good, and it's going to go back to, to something close, much closer to that. That's the beginning of how God is renovating the heavens and the earth, creating a new heavens, new earth, which, is, uh, which begins when Jesus returns and establishes that kingdom. The world is transformed. Something that we should get into our minds is when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom and rules the world, the world will not be like it is today. It will be radically transformed. In fact, the book of Romans says that creation is waiting for that moment. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, to cursedness, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, because of God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, if you notice, we are waiting to be physically transformed, physically redeemed in our bodies. So is creation. Just like we are, creation is. That's what it says. All of creation, the heavens and the earth, are waiting to be relieved of the curse of sin and to be transformed and made new again, to be in glorified form. And creation does get renewed. Isaiah describes it in Isaiah chapter 65. When God brings comfort to his people, it starts with Jesus reigning in Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young, for the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying there's going to be a, a time here where there are people who are living in the, uh, in the time of, of the Messiah reigning in the kingdom. 
A time when, when things are rectified, things are, are fixed. There will be survivors from tribulation who are living during that time, during the millennial kingdom, and their lifespans will be very long. That if you die 100 years old, you'll be considered a young man. If, if you die 100 years old as a sinner, they would think you're accursed. You only lived 100 years. So there's a time when there's still death and there's still sinful people on the earth. And so it's not the eternal state. It's not in the new heavens. It's not in the new earth. It's on earth. There are people who are living and dying. There are sinful people just as much as there are saints in Jerusalem. And that's the time of refreshing. That's a time of the kingdom where the Messiah is reigning in Jerusalem. Verse 21 of, uh, of that same chapter, Isaiah 65, says, They shall build houses, the, the people of God, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Think about this. This is the time in the kingdom where we will work and our work will not be cursed. We'll enjoy our work. Imagine that. To actually enjoy your work and not to be frustrated by it. Children won't die from disease. Genetic abnormalities. Creation is not cursed. There will be a reversal of that. Verse 25 of that chapter says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my, my holy mountains, says the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letter, says Yahweh. It tells you that during the time of the kingdom, when the Messiah reigns from Jerusalem, while there's still people who can live and die, and, and yet lifespans are super long, the biology and the ecology and the physics of the world are all cleaned up. No more disease, much longer lifespans, no predatorial creatures. Even the, the carnivores will be herbivores. Wolf and lamb lie down together. Kids can play in a snake pit, blooming flowers in the desert, streams of water in dry places. The world will be unlike what it is now. Do not think that when Jesus comes back, it'll just be like it is right now, except Jesus is governing. When he comes back, the world will reflect his transformative power that happens in us. It'll happen in creation. And Jesus will rightfully rule as king over all the kings of the earth. He'll rule Israel and all the nations shall be subdued. If there's any rebellious nation, he'll shatter it like a clay vessel. Look at uh, Psalm chapter two, verse seven. I'll tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is when God gives the earth to his son. The ends of the earth become Jesus' possession. The nations are his inheritance, and he breaks them. All his enemies, he breaks them, and then he rules. It'll be perfect justice, perfect equity. That's the kingdom rest that every believer can look forward to because every believer returns with Jesus at the second coming, and every believer lives in that kingdom for that thousand years. Your years will be like that of a tree, just 
goes on and on and on. So you have salvation rest, you have kingdom rest, and of course, finally, you have eternal rest. That's the easy one. Rest from your battle with sin, rest from your struggle with temptation, rest with an unjust society, rest, with people, uh, rest from people that, uh, that hurt you. Trial and tribulation are gone, sorrow, hurt, pain, mourning, death, all of it is gone. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When Jesus returns, he brings vengeance on his enemies, and then when he establishes that kingdom right then and there, once his enemies are subdued, it is relief for the people of God, and he'll gather us up, and we will marvel at him, and he will be glorified in the saints. That's the future that is for sure for everyone who repents of their sin and places their trust in Jesus. And with all of that, I leave you with Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, which is a prayer that we should all pray for all of God's people in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is the right kind of prayer. There's nothing material in that prayer. There's nothing consumable. There's nothing self-gratifying in that prayer. That is a prayer that just places all the trust in the power of God, not just your willpower, but the power of God to help you become who he has called you to be. It's not just try really hard to obey everything. You do it by your flesh, you'll fail. But keep coming back to God in confession, in repentance, in prayer. And watch him work through the course of your life to start correcting where you're going. If you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you already know the salvation rest that he offers. You'll experience that now. Despite every earthly struggle you will encounter, you should know that his vengeance on evil is coming. His judgment on sin is sure. All creation will be renewed to make a kingdom rest for you. All sin will be destroyed to make an eternal rest for you. Having such a future hope then, live with genuine faith today proven by the testing of your spirit in various trials. And if your faith is genuine, it will result in glory to Jesus. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we recognize two different feelings inside. We do rejoice that you will take vengeance on your enemies. We want that. 
for everyone who rebels against Jesus. We do hope for divine justice. And yet our hearts hope that people would repent and turn from their ways and come and worship you. They can't earn that, but you have done all the work to make that possible. They need only to receive your offer, to lay down the life that they were going after and to pick up the life that you offer them in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would extend that hope, make that offer known to everyone we can. We do pray for the vengeance of God on your enemies. And we pray for the relief for God's people. We hope that there are more that we can bring in to that relief, to that rest. And even for ourselves, Lord, because life is full of trouble and suffering and hardship and, and difficulty and tragedy. It's full of anger, injustice, depression and despair. There is so much, Lord, that torments our souls even now. But we look forward to the rest that is sure for your people. It's not found here. It's found in you when you return and when you bring us with you. And so come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray that when the time comes for you to redeem the world, we'd be ready that in the way we live now, it would reflect our certain hope in the future. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.